Welcome to the MHB Podcast. This is Michael Bond, and welcome to my 133rd episode. In this episode, I want to study Isaiah chapter 60. This chapter looks ahead to the future glory of Israel. Undoubtedly, it is referencing the peacetime they would enjoy after they returned home from exile. But it also looks much further ahead to the kingdom of Jesus Christ himself. In the final verse of the previous chapter, God promised the eternal blessing of his word and his spirit upon us. So we have scripture and we have the Holy Spirit to guide us in the will of God. This chapter gives us a look at the blessings which result from us walking in obedience to this guidance. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of scripture, the church has outlasted empires and endured for thousands of years. It will continue to extend on into the utmost ages of time. In addition to God's promise of endurance, he also promises expansion. We see in our own lifetimes how the name of Jesus has rippled out from one dusty corner of the world to be heard all across the planet. God has been expanding his church to the honor and glory of himself as our Redeemer. This chapter shows us that God will shine light upon his church even when much of the world shrouds itself in darkness. Many people from all over the world continue to join the kingdom of God in service of the Lord Jesus. This happened in the wake of Israel's homecoming as well. God's power was put on display and many people from neighboring nations sought to learn more about the Holy One of Israel. It's even happening right now. Every day, new converts are brought in whom God has designed to provide great service to the church and its interests. As a consequence, the church has held long-standing honor and reputation among humanity. It's true that there have always been skeptics, but it's also true that the church laid the groundwork for the most prosperous society on earth. Nations who are filled with a strong and, most importantly, accurate biblical influence tend to enjoy peace and tranquility. This peaceful tranquility will mature into its full form in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In Christ's kingdom, all members of the church will be made righteous by God, and so glory and joy will be everlasting. Again, we see foreshadows of this in the present moment as well as throughout history. Israel often enjoyed peaceful prosperity when they walked closely with God. They suffered famine and war when they departed from God. Our own nations have enjoyed advancement as they've emerged through generations of biblical influence. Our own nations become unstable and violent as our individuals back away from principle. This ebb and flow of advancement followed by disaster can only be mitigated by humanity. At best, we can navigate the waters of life in such a way as to maximize well-being. We can never fully eliminate the cycle of highs and lows. But Jesus can, and he will. In the Messiah's kingdom, there will be no decrease. There will be no mourning, and there will be no tears. The kingdom of God will be enriched with spiritual blessings and heavenly things by Jesus Christ himself. The joy and the glory we experience in the presence of the Holy One will be everlasting. Let's read verses 1 through 8. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nation shall come to you. 
A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud, and like doves to their windows? This passage explains how the vast expanses of the kingdom of God will be rich with light. When Israel returned from the darkness of exile, they enjoyed the light of gladness, joy, and honor. They were made to know the Lord, and they rejoiced in his great goodness. Something to remember is, even if you go through dark and tumultuous times, the presence of God is enough to drive all of that darkness away from you and cause you to rejoice. As our Redeemer, Jesus himself came to be a light in the darkness for humanity. When you commit your life to Christ and conduct yourself in accordance with God's will, you become a light in the darkness for humanity as well. The light of God which rises upon us is the glory of the Lord. God is the Father and source of all light. This light can shine into your life right now if you have the knowledge of God in you and the favor of God toward you. Not only will God's light shine into your life, but it will shine through your life into the lives of others. The glory of God will rise upon you as the morning light, and those around you will sense it. Such was the case with Israel when their neighbors watched their homecoming from Babylon. Jesus Christ is like the bright sunshine of righteousness. When he visited earth, humanity experienced the eternal light from heaven which the darkness could not comprehend. Today we live in a world where darkness is spread everywhere. In some places it is utterly dark. Some places are haunted with the kind of darkness you can feel, an evil that is palpable. But there is no place and there is no moment where we are abandoned to the abyss. There is no corner of the world that is too dark for the light of Christ. There is no soul whose darkness cannot be driven off by the bright sunshine and forgiveness of Jesus. In this way, the church stands out from the world. Even if the entire world be covered in darkness, the church will remain bright with light. The dark parts of the world where the gospel isn't preached may be melancholy, but none of them are immune from the tools Christ has given us for shining his light. That's why in many of these places the word of God is forbidden by law. Authoritarian leaders understand the power of truth to cut through their carefully crafted web of lies. If you commit yourself to Jesus, he will enlighten you by shining the honor of God upon you. Then you will be equipped to shine this light into the lives of others. With your words and your deeds, you should return the praise of this light to God's honor. In addition to the kingdom of God being rich with light, it will also be vast in size. Many people from the land joined themselves to the Jews on their return home from captivity. The accession of numerous people to the kingdom of God happened again when the Gentiles joined the church after Christ. Today, there is no geographic location that represents the center of unity for the church. The center of unity for the church is Jesus Christ himself. All of those who come by faith, hope, and love are drafted into the society which is incorporated by the gospel. We become brothers and sisters in the family of Christ. In this passage, the church is referenced as Zion or the heavenly Jerusalem. All believers are said to come from where they are and into the city of the living God. This is helpful to know if you feel like you're stuck in a bad place. Giving your life to Christ and allowing his Holy Spirit to indwell you will transport you out of that place. Across time, you will become someone who is quite literally different and better than who you used to be. And it's not like you're selling out who you are to become someone fake. 
To the contrary, the person you are without God is the artificial one. Allowing God to shape you into his image means becoming who you were always meant to be, even before you were born. The city of God is less like a new place for you and more like finally going back to your ancient home that was forsaken first by Adam and Eve. What causes people to want to join the church? Isaiah says they are allured to the light that emanates from within. The light of the gospel makes churches function like golden candlesticks in the darkness. The light of the gospel uncovers much of what we know about God and his goodwill toward humanity. The light of the gospel shows us the source of life and immortality. This is something all of us would do well to remember today. You don't need gimmicks and clever manipulations for people to join the church. God prepares the hearts of those who will join his kingdom, and as a result, they are drawn to the gospel when it is plainly taught. Those whom God has prepared will experience the gospel as a benefit to inform them concerning truth and duty. The Christian church should be characterized by truth and love. Christians exemplify their Lord when they patiently endure their sufferings while maintaining their focus on God in heaven. Authentic holiness brings beauty to a church that no amount of stage lights or performance can replace. If the church remains true to these values, then it will be a luminescent star that shines bright in the darkness. This light will function to draw many into the kingdom of God. People from all nations will be attracted to and will join the kingdom of God. Those who are saved will become disciples and mature into effective servants of the Lord. Even kings and other prominent people will be added to the church. The gospel is all-inclusive of those who invest their faith in Jesus. Often you hear the radical left parody this inclusion in their modern virtue signaling. They accuse everyone else of racism so as to improve their own standing. But true inclusion was founded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. People have come from every nation under heaven to be embraced by the church and to join the kingdom of God. The gospel is perhaps the only message with the power to form diverse people into a single body with one universal consent under God. The gospel causes people of every different background to gather together and strengthen one another. Throughout history, people have come from the furthest corners of the world to join the Church of Christ. They may have heard the gospel from far away as the Queen of Sheba heard the report of Solomon. They may have witnessed the good deeds of the Church from across the land as the wise men saw the star in the east. By whatever means God chose to use, he ignited a fire inside them to see the kingdom of God and they were not discouraged by the distance. Furthermore, the call of God is equal to both men and women. Sexual equality is another biblical value we often see parodied on the radical left. God desires both sons and daughters, and so both men and women come to the church in a dutiful manner. Both men and women submit to the education of scripture and the willful obedience to God's laws. Men and women alike need to be nursed from Christian infancy to Christian adulthood. The church is called to supply spiritual milk for new Christians until they are mature enough to stand on their own. Men and women equally enjoy the dignities of being in Christ's family, but men and women must also equally submit to the discipline of it. The capacity for sin is equal among both sexes, and therefore the need for salvation is present in both men and women. The church should rejoice when new people join the kingdom of God. The church benefits greatly from new members because these people bring value from many areas of life. Each person is unique in their own way and has skills they can use in service to God. An effective church is not a one-man show. An effective church is a body of believers, each making their own contribution to the whole. Wealthy people and merchants contribute to the kingdom of God by imbuing their products with holiness to the Lord. 
For example, maybe you're a restaurant owner who brings your extra supply to fill up a food bank. Or maybe you're an athlete who takes the opportunity to praise God from your platform. The fishermen and sea merchants brought their wealth to Israel to be used in works of piety and charity. Soldiers contribute to the kingdom of God by using their might to protect the church. Armed forces might be used to strengthen the interests of the kingdom of God throughout the world. For example, if you know there's a humanitarian crisis happening in some nation, the soldiers are the ones who carry out your orders to bring peace. The strength of soldiers is also a very effective deterrent of conflict. The Gentile forces had often fought against Israel, but God converted their allegiance and used their strength to serve his own interests. When it pleases him, God is able to make our enemies be at peace with us. The strong man builds himself up against Christ, but Christ dismantles the strong man and divides his spoil. Christ is able to take that which is armed against him and use it for his own purposes. There was great wealth brought into Israel over land by camels and carriages. Dignitaries from Midian and Sheba brought their richest commodities to be used in honoring God. Gold was brought to craft the altar, and incense was brought to be burned upon it. The future view of this prophecy was partially fulfilled when the wise men from the east brought the infant Christ gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In addition to this wealth, the Gentiles would bring a great number of sacrifices to God's altar. Despite being Gentiles, the quality of their sacrifices meant God would accept them. That's important for you to remember. It doesn't matter what color you are or where you come from. If you make true sacrifices, then God will honor you for it. The Gentiles brought flocks from Kedar and rams from Nebaioth. Kedar was famous for its flocks, and the choicest rams came from Nebaioth. What you give God doesn't matter so much as the quality of what you give God. He wants your best regardless of what your best is. Isaiah's prophecy concerning these sacrifices was fulfilled when the Persian king Darius ordered the governors from beyond the rivers to furnish the temple at Jerusalem with livestock for sacrificial offerings. Modern people tend to think sacrificial offerings are barbaric and primitive, but this role of the priest was more like what we consider butchers today. Often the people would eat and fellowship over these sacrifices. Juxtapose the sacrificial process with how we consume animals today. We keep them in brutal conditions on factory farms and scarf down our fast food without paying a second thought to the life that was taken for the meat. Modern people have lost none of their barbarism, and in some cases they've increased it. The accession of numerous people to the kingdom of God will bring honor to God. When wealth and talent is brought into the church, the purpose is to honor God. As a Christian, you should give your wealth and your talent to the church as an expression of praise to God. The aim should never be to show off your money or your abilities for your own sake. If your intention is not bringing glory to God, then it won't matter how much money you give or how talented you are. Your sacrifice will be rejected by God. A good way of testing your actions from day to day is to ask yourself if what you're doing honors God. Ask yourself if that's your fundamental motivation. If it's not, then you need to discern the spiritual issue that's causing this lapse in your wisdom. After all, it's not the sacrifices God is concerned with, it's your heart and your spirit. If we endeavor to give unto God the glory that is due to his name, then we will be called out of the darkness and into the light. God uses this process of redemption to bring honor to himself and to advance his kingdom. The church is where God manifests his glory to his people and receives their worship. It is for the glory of God and the advancement of the church that we make our sacrifices.
The church is greatly affected in a positive way by the increase of believers. One new Christian can totally revitalize a church. In this way, new members are often a pleasant surprise. Their presence brings joy and heartfelt gratification. But there's also usually a little bit of fear. Such was the case with Israel when they considered worshiping alongside Gentiles. This fear even impacted Peter. He saw a vision from heaven in order to get over it. But if you face this fear with faith, then you'll discover your heart grows through it. It's not uncommon for people to ostracize others who are different from them. Humanity does this because of fear. But if you push forward and get to know those people who are different from you, you'll discover two things. First is that you have more in common than you have differences. Second is that you love these people just as much as you love anyone else. That's an example of your heart growing, and if you trust God, he will provide this growth by bringing in new members. New Christians often inspire feelings of admiration from onlookers. Regardless of your worldview, when you see someone whose passion reveals the Spirit of God inside them, it tends to interest you. Isaiah describes new converts as if they are flying in a cloud. Even though they are a great multitude, they move in the same direction and overspread the heavens with their universality. That's what it looks like when a vast number of people are serving one Almighty Lord. New believers flocked to Israel with great speed and in plain sight of their enemies, and none could slow them down. The allusion to doves expresses the harmlessness and humility of those who follow Christ. Christians do not espouse violence or revolution, although we are not pacifists either. We move together by instinct to our Creator because we sense His voice. Like doves, we seek refuge in the house of God when pursued by predators. The house of God is where we go to rest when we are weary from wandering. Isaiah speaks of the conversion of souls as if it is a wondrous thing to be greatly admired. That really is an understatement. The sheer number of people who have flocked to Christ over thousands of years is something to behold. When we see them all together, we'll look on them with a great sense of wonder and awe. We'll see them and we'll know that each one forsook darkness and ran to the light. We'll know that each one is filled with a spirit of love and truth. Indeed, Christians will make the best company when we pass on into the kingdom of heaven. Let's read verses 9-14. through 14. For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. In this passage, Isaiah reiterates promises made to Israel and the kingdom of God. Undoubtedly, these promises were made to comfort the Jews as they looked forward to their return from exile. But the prophecies looked further ahead to the expansion and advancement of the kingdom of God and the spiritual blessings that will attend it. The foundation of all these promises rests on God's commitment to be gracious towards his people. 
the desolation of Jerusalem would only be repaired when God caused his face to shine upon it. Humanity would see Israel with renewed favor the moment God himself favored them and allowed the light of his countenance to rest on them. When a church becomes corrupt, it will suffer and decay. Divisions will emerge from within that threaten to undermine the blessings God has stored up. Total absence of blessing is a token of God's displeasure. If a church works in cross-purposes with God, then he will not bless it, and its success will be limited and short-lived. Israel had reached some degree of repentance, and so God was ready to pour out his mercy upon them. Isaiah's prophecy predicted that people from all over the world would join the kingdom of God. Coastlands and islands far from Israel would welcome the gospel with ready subjection, and they would praise God for it. The transport ships of Tarshish would be ready to bring people from distant lands to the church. They would also ship ministers and evangelists from the church to the distant lands. All of this to preach the gospel and bring new souls to join the Lord. God considers these new people as already belonging to him. Isaiah refers to them as God's children who were scattered abroad. Since these people lived so far away, they couldn't bring their livestock to make offerings with. So they sold their flocks and brought silver and gold instead. Tithing is a substantive expression of your faith in God. If you trust him with your spirit, then you should also trust him with your substance. The new believers understood God to be Lord of all, King of the Church, and the Holy One of Israel. They saw Israel as beautiful because Israel worshipped the Lord in holiness and God honored them for it. When God honors his people, it gives us a sense of wanting to honor them as well. We want to join God's people because we can sense that God is with them. We get a real idea of just how welcoming the church is of newcomers. The kingdom of God is so spacious that no matter how many arrive, there is still room for more. The doors of the church are open continually because God has no reason to fear his enemies. He desires to embrace his friends. Jesus Christ is always ready and willing to extend mercy to you. It's kind of like how you monitor the door when you're expecting company. There will never be a moment where you turn to Christ and he isn't already waiting for you. God's house is always open to those who come in sincerity. This carries an important message for ministers. Pastors must always be ready to admit church visitors who seek the Lord. Preachers must continually present the gospel, over and over again, even when it feels out of season. The gospel is never out of season. That's the main reason I continue to teach scripture verse by verse throughout this pandemic. We do the church a great disservice if we allow coronavirus news to drown out teaching of the word. The truth is, we never know when someone will be brought around who needs to hear the gospel. You never know whether you're the one who was meant to present it at the moment their soul needed it the most. So through all things, we must continually teach scripture. Every person who joins the church is in some way useful to the service of it. In the same way that God has made animals useful to us, he has made us useful to his church. In the case of Israel, even foreign people unfamiliar with Jerusalem were able to build up its walls. By order from the king of Persia, the governors of the provinces aided and assisted Nehemiah in rebuilding the walls at Jerusalem. This shows us that even those who do not belong to the church can be of great benefit to it. No person is ever in a position where it is beneath them to provide assistance to the church. The duty to advance the kingdom of God extends even to those who are outside of the church. Everyone should be doing all they can to support God's interests because God's interests are what's best for everyone. Isaiah suggests that any nation or kingdom who refuses to walk in obedience to God shall perish. This is not a convert-by-the-sword type of thing either. 
it's never appropriate for outsiders to be compelled to join the church. The truth is, if a nation refuses to walk in obedience to God, then that nation will likely tear itself to pieces. Fallen human nature will take over and civilized society will become impossible. And as for those who are committed to evil, they will not find the protection of Christ's word and spirit, but the destruction of his iron rod. The wicked will be laid to waste when Christ returns to set things straight. Isaiah's prophecy also predicts an abundance of beauty added to the ordinances of divine worship. In ancient days, when Solomon built the temple, he used the finest quality materials. Strong and stately cedars from Lebanon were brought in with other timber suitable for the finest carved work. The temple in Jerusalem was made beautiful to honor God's presence there. Israel's enemies had since destroyed this temple and ransacked the valuable goods. But the temple would be rebuilt and beautified once again. The second temple would not be quite as extravagant as the first, but in a very real sense it was greater because Jesus Christ walked there. Physical beauty and expensive adornment are not what's important in the sight of God. What makes a church truly beautiful are holiness and the presence of God's Spirit. Holiness and being filled with the Spirit are what makes a Christian beautiful as well. But I just want to add here that I don't think physical beauty is a bad thing either. There seems to be a fallacy in the church that we should make our buildings as plain and humble looking as possible. But humility isn't so much about physical appearance as it is about a spiritual condition. It's possible for a downtrodden, homely person to be super arrogant. It's also possible for beautiful sanctuaries to be filled with a spirit of humility. When Israel got home and rebuilt their cities, they appeared strikingly great and honorable. Their rebound from captivity far exceeded what others expected would happen. Even the other nations who were reduced to rubble by the Babylonians didn't see a recovery quite as impressive as Israel's. When the Jews were in Babylon, many people oppressed them. But when the Persians rolled through and the balance of power shifted, some of these oppressors likely courted the Jews for shelter and supply. The same thing happens today with enemies of the church. It's not uncommon for people to go through a phase in life where they are critical of the church and proud of their own sins. Once they see the error of their ways, they humble themselves and seek admission into the family of God. There's nothing hypocritical about this maneuver. God desires it. He wants you to see your own shortcomings and your need for a savior. He's not going to hold a grudge against you for being wrong about something. Paul was a really good example of this. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. For part of his life, he persecuted Christians. Then Jesus got a hold of him and radically transformed him into the most prolific author of the New Testament. There will come a time when all proud oppressors of God's people will face mortification. It's not certain whether they will repent and embrace God, but it is certain that their pride will be reduced to smoldering ruins. As for the oppressed, they will have the opportunity to show grace and mercy on their former oppressors. It brings a good person great joy to be able to work kindness for those who showed them no kindness. Indeed, such actions are a mirror image of Christ himself when he gave his life on the cross for the salvation of sinners. There will come a time when the city of God is universally recognized as the best place to be. The followers of Jesus will be revealed as those who found truth in a world of ideas. Their condition will be shown as strong, honorable, rich, safe, beautiful, and most desirable. It will be clear to all around that the presence of God is with them, and the providence of God has blessed them. Let's read verses 15 through 22. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, 
with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron. I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. Violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous, they shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. This passage looks into the future and considers the glorious state of the church as well as the spiritual peace that comes with it. Israel enjoyed some glimmers of peace when they returned from captivity. But this prophecy principally previews the eternal kingdom of God. People often ask if God is all-loving and all-powerful, then why is there so much suffering in the world? I think the best answer to this question is to say that the highest dimension of good can never be unlocked without suffering. The highest dimension of good is not the absence of suffering. The highest dimension of good is redemption from suffering. A cold drink of water tastes far better when you're thirsty and hot. God's people, having been through their share of suffering, will experience peace and honor that is all the more pleasant because of it. Israel had been despised, but now they would be honored. Jerusalem had turned into a city that was forsaken by her friends, abhorred by her enemies, and left to become abandoned ruins. At one point, travelers declined to go through that city because of how desolate and pitiful it had become. But as God's people repented from idolatry and regained the blessing of God's favor, he would turn Jerusalem into a strong city once more. This prophecy looks beyond Jerusalem to show the kingdom of God as an eternal excellency. It shall be a joy to good people for many generations. Where once the people of God were oppressed and alienated by their neighbors, the spread of the gospel has resulted in powerful nations laying themselves out for the benefit of the church. Israel understood the Lord to be their God before they went into captivity, but when they came out they learned he is also their savior. This happens to a lot of people today. Many individuals grow up with some notion of God. It's not uncommon to say you believe in God simply because you've always believed in God. But when you experience God's rescuing providence in your life, you become intimately aware that he is indeed your savior. Israel's salvation from exile meant going from poverty to enrichment. They were raised out of the dust, and their quality of life was greatly improved. They would never return to their former glory, but it was still much the better than living as captives. Long before the exile, Israel's economy was probably at peak wealth under Solomon. He spared no expense in building the temple. Gold and other precious metals were common in this place. Corruption festered over time until sin turned their gold into brass. For example, Rehoboam pawned the golden shield Solomon made and replaced them with brazen ones. But even Israel in all its splendor cannot match the spiritual glory that is to come in the kingdom of God. When you commit your life to Jesus Christ, he turns your iron into silver, your brass into gold. This isn't to say that God makes you wealthy, but it is to say that God enriches your spirit. 
Before exile, Israel had a major problem with corrupt leadership. Much of their vexation and injustice was a consequence of sinful princes and officers. Tax collectors often exacted more from the people than what was owed to them. Judges cared more about bribes than they did about justice. Government was less interested in keeping the peace and more aligned with abuse of power. But in the kingdom of God, peace will flow like a river. Righteousness will be as the waves of the sea. It's really important to remember that any nation's institutions are only as good as the individuals who occupy them. Even in the United States, our Constitution can only protect American liberty so long as those in power respect the Constitution. The truth is, there is no program or institution that is safe against the corruption of individuals. Our success as a civilization begins and ends with the responsibility of the individual. One of the reasons why the American system works so well is that it assumes human beings are fallen and corrupt. Checks and balances assume corruption and try to account for it. But if each individual who occupies the institution no longer believes humanity is corrupt, they will toss out these systems that account for corruption. They will centralize the power and create a vehicle that is perfect for the emergence of a wicked despot. That's what happens when you start to believe you're perfect just the way you are. Israel had faced insult and derision at the hands of their neighbors. They were invaded, spoiled, and plundered. Internal violence was commonplace. But in the kingdom of God, the threats and triumphs of those who do violence will be heard no more. The outcries and complaints of those who suffer violence will cease forever. Every person will peaceably enjoy their own. There will be no destruction or wasting away inside the kingdom of God. People and their possessions will extend on in perpetuity. Loss and scarcity will be a thing of the past. We will be embraced by the strong walls of salvation, and our safety will inspire us to praise the mighty God who saved us. The glory and the happiness of heaven will far exceed even the most prosperous societies we know on earth. Right now we live in a world where the church must engage fallen reality. Churches are often where people go when they are in their most broken condition. But Isaiah looks ahead to the church after it is triumphant and God has restored creation to his intended order. In heaven, all the promised peace, joy, and honor will be in perfection. The faithful walk through life with God as their light. His word guides their footsteps, and they can move comfortably even if other lights go out. When the light of God's favor is shining upon you, it makes the sun and moon seem insignificant by comparison. In heaven, God's favor will enlighten you forever. Sunshine makes candlelight seem insignificant. The light of God will make sunshine seem like candlelight. It's possible the sun and the moon made up the most ancient forms of idolatry. People worshipped them because they needed them. But in heaven there will be no need for the sun or the moon because the light of God will be with us forever. When you depend on God to be your light, you will find that he is all-sufficient. God's people have always been honorable in the sense that they have the Lord as their God. His glory is what glorifies you. The light of God is different from the light of the sun because the light of God has no variance or decay. The sun can be eclipsed. The sun goes down and leaves you in the dark. The clouds of storms can cover the sun and hide it from you. None of this is true about God's light because God is the Father of all lights. The joyful happiness that you experience in the presence of God will extend for eternity in heaven. Imagine the happiest, most meaningful times of your life. Being in the light of God is something like that, only much better and never-ending. When we go through suffering, we often call it a dark season. But there will be no dark seasons in heaven. 
God is the source of these blessings which are prepared for your glorified soul and your glorified body. God never changes, so these blessings will not see the least amount of cessation or interruption. Never again will you mourn. Never again will you cry. Never again will you suffer the affliction of sin, and the sorrow of sighing shall flee away forever. Every person who resides in heaven will be righteous. Each of us will be justified by the righteousness of the Messiah, and every one of us will be sanctified by his Spirit. Finally, we will be characterized by the holiness without which no person can stand before God. No matter where you look on earth, you can never find a perfectly righteous person besides Jesus. As hard as we try, even our best societies are only a mixture of good and bad. Every human heart contains this mixture of good and bad. But in heaven, this mixture is gone. In heaven, every part of every single person will be always and entirely righteous. There will be no corruption in the spirit of humanity, and each of us will be made perfect. We will be made into what we were always meant to be. People always wonder what kind of society we could build if we purged humanity of all its corruption. Such an effort has been tried and failed innumerable times throughout history. But the truth is, this society already exists, and God is the one who is building it. He's already done what we could never seem to do. In heaven, the glory of the church will redound to the honor of God. Just as he did in the beginning, so he will do in the end. He will look upon his creation and say that it is very good. Your life has been exactly what God intended it to be, to prepare you for entrance into paradise. Your life and your soul are the work of his hands, molded perfectly to be fitted for the blessings he has in store for you. This is a process that takes longer for some than it does for others. But for all who have faith, the process will come to completion. When we see each other in heaven, we will appear as wondrous creations and God will be glorified for it. We will praise Jesus for being the one who began it, carried it on, and finished it. We will remember the smallness of our origin and the sufferings of life. But this knowledge will be fully reframed in such a way that it brings no pain to us, only dizzying heights of joy and thankfulness. Israel multiplied into a great nation when they returned home from Babylon. The Christian church, which spans the globe and numbers in the billions, began with just one man who is Jesus. And so it will be for every glorified person in the kingdom of God. All of us will have started out so small. It's part of God's motif to take something small and grow it into something grand. The astrophysicists who subscribe to the Big Bang Theory suggest the entire universe began as an infinitesimal point and exploded into expansion. We ourselves begin with faith like the grain of a mustard seed, and this faith transforms our entire being into something new. When we get to heaven, we'll look back on how it all began and wonder how we got here. It will indeed be a miracle. Isaiah closes this chapter with God's ratification of this wonderful promise. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. Redemption is a thing that often seems too difficult for us. How can we overcome so much that went wrong, and how can we ever exist without it? It seems too hard for us because it is too hard for us, but it's not too hard for God. I, the Lord, will do it, who can do it, and who has determined to do it. Our redemption is in God's hands, and his power is irresistible. His purposes are unalterable. As we walk through life, all of this can seem so far away. It can feel like ages must go by before it is complete. Although God's work for redemption may take some time, we can rest assured that he will hasten it and no time will be lost. He's planned the moment so that in its proper time it will be the most beautiful. The time according to God's wisdom is not the time according to our determination. God will never be late and he will never be early because we know that God's chosen time is perfect. 
So although the storms may still rage, although the pain may still be fresh, you can have peace in knowing that your Lord and Savior is working out his plan exactly how it needs to go. While you're alive, each of your days come and go. Every moment watches you grow a little older. But there is a morning in your future which will mark the day that has no end. The day when you stand before God in the kingdom of heaven, justified, glorified, sanctified, and prepared to accept all the blessings he most desires to give you. Will you be ready for that moment? If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it. You can follow the MHB Podcast on Facebook or Twitter, at MHB Podcast. Tell your friends about it and share it on social media. If you'd like email notifications of new episodes or if you'd like to support my work directly, please consider becoming a paid subscriber on my website at mhbpodcast.com. This work is made possible by listener support, so your generosity is greatly appreciated. Thank you all for joining me, and I will see you in the next episode.